Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds family, this is Amit. On behalf of all of us at Cardio Nerds, we are thrilled to bring to you our Decipher the Guideline series for the 2022 AHA, ACC, HFSA Guideline for the Management of Heart Failure. Get ready for short and bite-sized, high-impact, clinical vignette-based questions designed to highlight core concepts based on cutting-edge evidence that are relevant to your practice. The cases we use are hypothetical and created for educational purposes only. This series was developed by the Cardio Nerds and created in collaboration with the American Heart Association and the Heart Failure Society of America. It was created by 30 trainees spanning college student through advanced fellows with mentorship from Dr. Anu Lala, Dr. Robert Menz, and Dr. Nancy Schweitzer. We thank Dr. Judy Bazanson and Dr. Elliot Antman for their guidance along the way. So friends, join us as we get to learn about the heart failure guidelines and beyond from 16 leading faculty experts. And now, let's get nerdy. The following question refers to section 7.32, 7.38, and 7.62 of the 2022 ACC-AHA-HFSA guideline for the management of heart failure. The question is asked by Palisades Medical Center Medicine Resident and Cardio Nerds Intern Dr. Miriam Bokaldorian, answered first by Hopkins Bayview Medicine Resident and Cardio Nerds Academy Fellow Dr. Ty Sweeney, and then by expert faculty Dr. Robert Mentz. Dr. Mentz is Associate Professor of Medicine and Section Chief for Heart Failure at Duke University, a clinical researcher at Duke's Clinical Research Institute, and Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Cardiac Failure. Dr. Mentz is a mentor for the Cardiac Clinical Trials Network as lead principal investigator for the Paraglide HF and is a series mentor for this very Decipher the Guidelines series. For these reasons and many more, he was awarded the Master Cardiac Award during ACC 22. Welcome, 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 Dr. Mentz. Thank you so much, Dan. It's really a privilege to be here. I'm looking forward to the discussion with the group tonight and talking through how we translate guidelines into clinical practice. Of course, we are very excited. So with that, Miriam, take it away. Miss Betty Blocker is a 60-year-old woman with a history of alcohol-related dilated cardiomyopathy who presents for follow-up. She has been working hard to improve her health and is glad to report that she has just reached her five-year sobriety milestone. Her current medications include metabrol succinate 100 mg daily, sacubitril valsartan 97-103 mg twice daily, spironolactone 25 mg daily, and empagliflozin 10 mg daily. She's asymptomatic at rest and up to moderate exercise, including chasing her grandchildren around the yard. A recent transthoracic echocardiogram shows recovered LVEF from previously 35% now to 60%. Ms. Blocker does not love taking so many medications and asks about discontinuing her metoprol. Which of the following is the most appropriate response to Ms. Blocker's request? A. Since the patient is asymptomatic, metoprolol can be stopped without risk. B. Stopping metoprolol increases this patient's risk of worsening cardiomyopathy regardless of current LBEF or symptoms. C. Because the LBEF is now more than 50%, the patient is now classified as having heart failure, preserved ejection fraction, and beta blockade is no longer indicated. Metoprolol can be safely discontinued. D. Metoprolol should be continued, but it is safe to discontinue either RNA or spironolactone. Ty, what do you think about this question? 
And this is a great question and something that we encounter a lot when our patients are talking to us about not wanting to increase their pill burden even further. For me, the correct answer here is B, that stopping metoprolol would increase her risk of worsening cardiomyopathy. Heart failure tends to be a chronically sympathetic state, and the use of beta blockers, specifically bisoprolol, metoprolol succinate, and carvedilol, targets this excess adrenergic output and has been shown to reduce the risk of death in patients with HEF-REF or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Beyond their mortality benefit, beta blockers can improve left ventricular ejection fraction, lessen the symptoms of heart failure, and improve clinical status overall. Therefore, in patients with HEF-REF with current or previous symptoms, use of one of the three beta blockers proven to reduce mortality, again, bisoprolol, carvedilol, or sustained-release metoprolol succinate, these are recommended to reduce mortality and hospitalizations. This is a class 1 level of evidence A recommendation. Also in the guidelines, beta blockers in this setting provide a high economic value. Table 14 of the guidelines provides recommendations for target doses for GDMT medications. Specifically for beta blockers, those targets are 25 to 50 milligrams twice daily for carvedilol, or 80 milligrams once a day for the continuous release formulation, 200 milligrams once daily for metoprolol succinate, and 10 milligrams once daily for bisoprolol. While we should all be cognizant of pill burden and other barriers to our patients' quality of life, we must also counsel them about the risks of discontinuing any element of guideline-directed medical therapy, or GDMT. The 2022 Heart Failure Guidelines recommend the long-term use of beta blockers for patients diagnosed with HEFREF, even if symptoms have improved, which is option A. Conversely, long-term treatment should also be maintained even if symptoms do not improve to reduce the risk of major cardiovascular events. Importantly, the abrupt withdrawal of beta blockers can lead to clinical deterioration. Our patient here has heart failure with improved ejection fraction, defined as having a previous LVEF of less than or equal to 40%, and now with a greater than or equal to 10 percentage point increase from baseline, with a follow-up measurement of LVEF greater than 40%. Heart failure with improved ejection fraction is distinct from HEF-PEF, or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and was proposed in the Universal Definition and Classification of Heart Failure by Boskurt et al., published in the Journal of Cardiac Failure in 2021. The reason for this was to distinguish those who benefit from continued guideline-directed medical therapy from those who may not. Accordingly, in patients with heart failure with improved ejection fraction, after treatment, guideline-directed medical therapy should be continued to prevent relapse of heart failure and left ventricular dysfunction, even in patients who may be asymptomatic. This is a class 1 level of evidence BR recommendation. So while GDMT may improve symptoms, functional capacity, ejection fraction, and reverse remodeling in patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, these favorable changes do not reflect full and sustained recovery, but rather remission with susceptibility to worsen with GDMT withdrawal. Therefore, stopping any element of her GDMT, whether that be beta blockers, RNA, or mineral corticoid receptor antagonists, would be incorrect, knocking out options A, C, and D. So for me, the main takeaways from this question are that in patients with HEF-REF who experience improvement in heart failure symptoms and cardiac function on GDMT, i.e. develop heart failure with improved ejection fraction, it is important to continue optimizing GDMT to prevent relapse even if asymptomatic. Dr. Menz, I was wondering if you had any additional insights into how we can best counsel a patient like this, especially if they are feeling strongly about discontinuing some of their medications. Are there ever situations where de-escalation might be reasonable? Yeah, thanks so much, Ty. So I think you really nicely went through a very common clinical scenario. 
some of this is like the blessing and curse of the amazing opportunities we have in heart failure management now that really emphasizing the importance of quad therapy. But we have to balance that by understanding the pill burden on our patients. So I think as you are going through this case, some of the things that really stuck out for me, we need to all be aligned and share this message around these four foundational drugs. I think some of this really is setting those expectations from the onset. So from the very first clinic visit I have with patients, I talk through some of my goals and I want to make sure I listen to the patient's goals and their caregiver and their support team's goals so we can work together to make sure that those are aligned. It doesn't do any good if I say, I've got these four meds, we've got to get you on them and a couple of them, we've got to get you on higher doses. If that's not going to be in line with their plans, I try to walk through some of my rationale and I've shifted a little bit, even how I start my clinic business. I'll say, you know, I have some things on my list that I want to make sure to get through today, but are there things you want to discuss? So I think by starting there, then you can transition and talk through your goals after you've addressed some of their concerns or, or things to talk through. Talking about quad therapy and laying out that roadmap for their treatment over time. And I set it up that it's very common. One of the questions that comes up or, you know, am I going to be on these therapies lifelong? For the vast majority of patients, the answer to that is yes. So as you nicely highlighted with these data, even as their ejection fraction may improve, they become asymptomatic or have a reduction in their symptom burden. What we know is that we need to keep those therapies on board. We have important randomized trial data from TREDHF, which shows that in patients, when we come off of these therapies, even if their ejection fraction is improved, that puts them at risk for worsening over time. So I try to lay out that roadmap but then I also try to balance it by saying, are there things on your medication list that we could stop? So I try to address concerns around polypharmacy, stopping things like oral iron or, or others that are, have been shown to not be effective in patients with heart failure. So I try to work through that together and really address their concerns. And then I also try to lay out the expectations of, yes, we want you on these lifelong, but there may be times down the line where clinicians may say to you, well, let's stop this one. Or maybe you're even seeing the pharmacist and they say, this is your blood pressure medicine. You say, well, I don't have hypertension. I'm going to stop that. So my general approach is to lay out, these are the four medicines for your heart. If anybody tries to stop these medications, please connect with us first so that we can talk through that to make sure that we've got you on the right therapies and understand things over time. So really, I set up the expectation that aside from the rare circumstance where there may have been some clearly reversible cause that led to their cardiomyopathy, which is a very rare case in general, I've set that expectation and really try to guide them about being on these four therapies lifelong to best improve their quality of life, their quantity of life, and help keep them out of the hospital. Thank you, Dr. Mintz, for this amazing discussion.